to What You Will Learn, and uh, welcome back to Season 6. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones, and today we're taking you through the first of our Juggernaut Month, A Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. This is a, a book about, uh, it's not an easy read whatsoever, it's a retelling of Viktor Frankl's life and experiences living through World War II, living as a Jew in Germany, going through a couple of different concentration camps. Not one, not two. I think he went to three mm. different camps, didn't he? Oh, he did. He, he jumped around a fair bit through the camps, which wasn't a good thing. But the book isn't just about what he suffered and lost. It's, I think it's more about his sources of strength to survive and what we can take today and really in any context in our lives. So Victor, he was a lot more than a Holocaust survivor. He was a neurologist, psychiatrist, philosopher. He started a new realm of philosophy, which was logotherapy. Published 39 books, and of course, the most famous one is the one we're doing today, the best-selling book, Man's Search for Meaning, which I reckon has sold millions of copies and a lot of people's favorite books have ever come across. This book isn't necessarily uh, a historical account of all the facts and figures and everything from the Holocaust. What it is, it's his personal experiences and the personal experiences of those that he was in the camp with, that he saw around. Uh, it's obviously reflective of millions of people who suffered through that time. Uh, and it's just really these these tales of some people never made it out alive. In fact, most people didn't make it out alive. Some people did. And it, uh, I guess a, a retelling of trying to find you know, how did the life in concentration camps affect different people in different ways? Frankel's concern is more about the question of how the hell did anyone survive this? As terrible as Auschwitz was, what we can learn through the book today is life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as, say, Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught, but it's really a quest for meaning. He quotes Nietzsche in saying that he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. 1,500 people had been rounded up and popped on a train. They had their luggage. Uh, there wasn't really enough room for 1,500 people, so people were lying on top of each other, lying on top of their luggage, cramming in whatever they could. Uh, the carriages were so full that only the very top parts of the window were able to be seen from. Uh, everyone expected that the train was headed to some munitions factory where they would be employed as slave labor as part of the war. They didn't know where they were headed. They didn't know that they were already in Poland. The train had been going for several days and several nights, and eventually the train slowed. felt like it was nearing some kind of station or nearing some kind of stop. The train eventually stopped. Uh, there was a bit of anxiousness, a bit of quietness, and eventually some cry broke out. One of the anxious passengers looked out and said, there is a sign, Auschwitz. Mm, you can imagine that. Everybody's heart missed a beat at that moment because they knew what the name stood for. It had a reputation already, this place, gas chambers, crematoriums, massacres, and almost hesitantly, the train actually just sped up as it, as it went past, as if you know, it was trying to spare them this dreadful realization that was sweeping through the train. And as they arrived, the, the sun was coming up, the dawn was arising, and the outlines of the immense camp became visible as they arrived. So when they rocked up, there was long stretches of several rows of barbed wire fences, watchtowers searchlights and long columns of ragged human figures had obviously been working there for a while. So step by step from the train through to the camp, they became more accustomed to this new horror that they faced. Some of the people who had just got off the train, they looked inside the camp and they saw the prisoners that had been there for a little while and they said, oh, actually these prisoners look quite well, you know, who knows, maybe we're going to be okay here. In psychiatry, this is known as the delusion of reprieve. Just before they were about to enter 
what exactly what they knew they were about to enter. They were hoping that maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, they found that this is actually true of people headed to execution as well. People who have been sentenced to death, they're on their, their final march, they're walking up to the chair or whatever wherever they're headed and they get this illusion that maybe there's going to be mm-hmm. this last minute reprieve maybe that phone's going to ring and the governor's going to save them you see it on on tv shows all the time where just just they're about to hit the switch and the the big dog or the president calls to give them a pardon they're just hoping that they're going to get this last minute reprieve and that's exactly what these people getting off the train were hoping for they thought look we've heard the stories of auschwitz but maybe it's all stories maybe it's okay maybe we're going to be looked after here yeah, I could absolutely imagine that. I think we all got this illusion that we're not going to die one day. I think mm. even if my death was coming, I just wouldn't believe it, sort of thing. So you'd hope that that new miracle drug just you get you're lying on the on the deathbed, and they say, "Oh, we found this new experimental drug that's going to give you an extra ten years." It, you're always hoping for that last minute reprieve. So the authorities they were only interested in the captive numbers. So these numbers they were tattooed on the skin, also put on a certain spot of the trousers or the jacket or the coat. And any guard who wanted to make a charge against a prisoner, they wouldn't say, hey, Vic, you know, we're against you at the moment. No, it's, it's uh, all about the number. And Victor was 119,104. And at this stage, his identity was stripped until this is all that was left of him. Yeah, all their possessions were removed from them. Uh, anything that they brought with them, they were told to leave their luggage behind. They were stripped down. They were given these striped uniforms. Their heads were shaved. They were really depersonalized in every element. Anything that made them who they were previously was gone. Their hair was gone. Uh, their clothing was gone. Their belongings were gone. Even their name was gone, and they just became 119104, and that was that. That's who you were from now on. You weren't who you were before. You're now just a number. The first process when they hopped off the train was the selection process, right? So, you know, there was a SS soldier who had this finger that pointed left or right to each prisoner. Nobody knew what it meant, whether, whether it goes left or right, what happens next. One by one, they would step up. The SS soldier would put their hands on them. They'd check them out a little bit and they'd either point to the left or they'd point to the right. More often than not, it was pointing to the right. And this was the very first selection. Uh, later that evening, it became extremely apparent what left or right meant. It was the verdict of existence versus non-existence. Victor, he walked up. The SS soldier put his hands on him. He gave his shoulders a bit of a shake. He felt how you know how 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 he was standing up. Was he walking okay? Was he looking okay? Was he looking tough? Victor, he got pointed to the left, and what they found out was that the left means work, but for the vast majority that was sent to the right, that meant death. So they later found out that night that the, the 90% who went to, to death, they went into a building um, with the words Bath written on it with every European language essentially and they walked in, they were given a, a piece of soap and then uh, we don't really have to say what happened after that. I think enough's been said on that. So obviously at this very stage, the 10% were extremely lucky um, to be put where they were in a relative sense, not in an absolute sense, absolutely. Mm. Because on the first day, they woke up after an awful sleep, as you could imagine, to an SS man. And he said, I'm going to give you two minutes and everybody needs to get fully undressed, drop everything, and you're going to take nothing except your shoes. And this morning, they all went into the, to the shower room. And, you know, you can imagine after hearing about the gas chambers, you know everything, and then you're waiting and then the, 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 the tap goes forward and luckily water started hitting them. So in a relative sense, they were quite glad um, not to have have gas in those in those cylinders most certainly when uh when you look at the experiences of the people who had got to that point the workers 
Uh, Frankel broke it down into three phases, which will split out throughout this episode. The first phase, uh, and especially like the, the first psychological phase, can only be described as shock. Like there were so many things looking around this camp that were absolutely shocking. Obviously, they were shocked that you know 90% of the people that had come on the train with them weren't with them anymore. They were shocked by all the things that were going on around them. They were shocked that they were stripped of everything they owned and everything that they were. And they were just basically just shocked at everything that was going on. The thought of suicide, as you can imagine, was entertained by nearly everyone who went in there, if only for a brief moment. And it was born of the hopelessness of the situation because there's this constant new danger that was escalating all over them of death. And the closeness of the death suffered by everyone else, like your friends and your family, you saw what was happening. So in this first phase of shock, they didn't really fear death. Even the gas chambers, um, as bad as they were, they didn't fear them as much because in one sense, the gas chambers actually spared them the act of committing suicide and not having, you know, having to entertain those awful thoughts. After that initial selection, that initial left or right, and the 10% that were chosen for work and, and spared another day, there was actually multiple selections that happened quite regularly that uh, quite often they would go through these selection processes. The strongest and the fittest would be kept for work and those who weren't strong enough anymore to keep working would be sent along with those other 90%. There was actually one of the blokes that had been around there for a long time, um, had learned a couple of tricks of the trade, and he, he got a group of the group of them together and said, there's one thing I beg of you is to shave daily if at all possible. If you have to, use a piece of glass, whatever you need to do to get it, even hand over your last piece of bread to get that piece of glass. Because to use that glass and to shave every day, it will make you look younger, which makes you look fitter. Also, the scraping makes those cheeks look a bit tougher, so it makes you look like you're stronger. So if you want to stay alive, there's only one way, and that means to be fit to work and to look fit to work. Yeah, he said, sooner or later, every single man who looks miserable or beaten down or sick or emancipated or, you know, if you're limping because you got a blister in your heel, anything like that, there's only one destiny and the next day, you're going to find yourself in the gas chambers. So, he looked around at everybody and examined their condition and uh, he, unfortunately for Franco, he said, you know, none of you are going to have to fear the next election, right? I think, oh, but I think there's one of you over there and he pointed to Vic and said, except you. If I was you, I'd be a bit worried about what's to come in your future. Man, that would, that's a horrendous thing. To think everybody's safe except for you. You'd be pretty, I don't know, you'd, you'd think you'd be pretty disappointed, but Frankel smiled, and he says it was a weird reaction to being told that you're probably going to get sent to the chambers tomorrow. But at that stage of the, the whole experience, he said that whilst it seemed an abnormal reaction, it was such an abnormal experience that an abnormal reaction was almost normal. And he was pretty convinced that anybody in that position would have also smiled. Just off air, we were talking about trying to bring some lightness into this episode and it unfortunately isn't full of light. Um, we know we knew this going in there. Yeah. There's a lot to learn from Victor, but um, you know there, there is so much suffering in this book. It can be quite heavy. Um, so we're just calling that out a bit as we keep keep continuing on yeah we normally like to have a bit of banter and a few gags it sort of feels hard to work a gag into this it is a little bit but i think it's a very powerful episode if uh, if you keep on listening through because his experiences is something and his lessons is something we can all take away yeah absolutely so we spoke about how phase one was just all about shock they just were in complete disbelief and complete shock about what was happening around them very quickly they moved into phase two which was apathy and apathy was just the absolute blunting of emotions. I feel like they couldn't really care anymore. 
they feel like there was really no reactions. They were completely insensitive as in it didn't matter what happened around them. They had this protective shell where nothing got in, nothing got out and they were just pretty much dull. You can imagine in stage one, if something really bad happens, like you know your mate who you're marching around with in the cold just gets smacked up by a prisoner with his baton and beaten up on the ground to an inch of life, you know, at the start, you're just shocked. You've never seen anything like this before. You're like, how the hell can another human being, an SS soldier, an SS soldier do this to another human? But days or weeks later, when you start seeing it all the bloody time, things began to change. Rather than looking away in shock, you're kind of just looking at it with complete numbness of your senses and emotions. So you're not even looking away at this stage. So this is stage two where you're not even averting your eyes at all. You watch on and it's like your emotions feel like they've completely dissipated out of the body. Your feelings are blunted and you can just watch all sorts of atrocities unmoved. There was a 12-year-old boy who'd been forced to stand and work in the snow for hours on end with no shoes and his feet were badly frostbitten. He got carried to the medical bay to see the doctor and the doctor said, it's, it's too far gone, your feet, your toes are completely dead. And the doctor whipped out some tweezers and pulled off those black gangrenous stumps one by one. Mm. And people were just looking at that. Normally, you'd be disgusted, you'd be horror, there'd be pity. But the people in stage two, they just looked on and thought... Man, I can't, go, I can't even it. watch uh, horror scenes in just a Netflix movie, mm. let alone something like that. In real life, isn't it? In, the, in stage one, if someone died, it was obviously met with sadness, guilt, grief. But in stage two, death took on a whole new message. After someone had died, people would just sort of look around at each other, see who was going to make the first move. With no emotion whatsoever, they'd walk up one by one to sit this still warm corpse and see what they could grab. Maybe it was a half a slice of bread that was in his pocket. Maybe one would go up and take his shoes. Maybe one would go and take his belt. Another would go and grab his coat. Eventually, those prisoners in phase two, death meant nothing to them other than an opportunity to try to further themselves. So it's an abnormal world they're living in right now. And one evening, Victor Frankel, he woke up to someone kind of groaning in his sleep and tossing and turning. And he threw himself out of bed, still like sleepwalking, obviously in a horrible nightmare. And uh, Vic, he always felt sorry for the people who had such bad dreams. And the immediate reaction was to go and wake him up. But then he thought twice. He thought, "How that uh, is his dream? Is it possible that his dream is actually worse than the reality we're in right now?" And rather than putting his hand to wake him up, he took his hand back in and went to bed and let this guy continue on his his nightmare. Oh, that's pretty rough. When the you don't want to wake up someone from the nightmare because the world they're living in is is worse than the nightmare they're imagining. It's pretty horrendous. Um, goes without saying, I think. Their food, they'll ration this watery soup that was given out once a day. Uh, if you got lucky, they'd scoop the soup from the bottom of the of the dish and you might get one or two peas. If you're unlucky, you just get the water off the top. You get a bread ration, which is basically a slice a day. Some people went and ate the whole slice at once to try to kill the hunger pangs. Some people would have literally crumb by crumb. They'd keep the bread in their pocket. They'd feel it every now and then. If they wanted just a little bit of a sense of salvation, they'd just run their fingers over this piece of bread, maybe break off a little crumb or two to try to keep them going. Uh, but... It's, uh, they were living on almost nothing, really. Yeah, the, it's very hard for us to believe or imagine what it's like. Someone going through famine and that extreme hunger, but this is what it's like. Your, your, your whole mind cannot get off food and caressing breadcrumbs and it gets uh, you know, into kinky weird stuff like that. <laughs> it does. It does, definitely. We got one gag in there. That's, a, that's good. <laughs> it was a pretty weak gag, <laughs> weak though, mate. Weak gag, but we'll the, take what we can get. 
the biggest issue, the, the hardest thing is waking up in this nocturnal hour. Um, one morning, they began to tussle into their wet shoes and he heard another man who's normally got his shit together, even in the camp, so he's one of the stronger ones there. He's bawling his eyes out, right? He's on his knees crying. And that's all because he just found out that this is the first day when he tried to put his shoes on because progressively the feet were getting more and more swollen. Today, he couldn't fit his shoes on and he had to walk out there without shoes into the freezing cold, um, the bare feet to do the work for the whole day. And moments like this, Victor, he kind of grabbed a tiny bit of breadcrumb and munched into light because that's the only thing that could get his, his mind off these things. Yeah, he realized that... Even in the state that Victor was in, he at least knew that he had a little bread, little bit of a breadcrumb and that he wasn't, things could be worse effectively and he just took salvation knowing that things could be worse. But the mind sort of played all sorts of tricks like this. They went to all sorts of different escapes. For Victor, he'd escape into a bit of a fantasy land. He'd live in the past in the sense that he'd remember taking bus rides around the city, going to work. He'd remember coming home, unlocking his front door, walking into his apartment, answering the telephone, speaking to a friend. This inner life became more and more intense and more and more uh, heightened in the sense that he was creating the fantasy world. He often did this as a way, not even intentionally, but his mind took his focus off all the atrocities that were going on around him and just lived in the fantasy land. Yeah, there was this intensification of inner life, which all the prisoners could have. Like um, one morning when they were on a train going from Auschwitz to another Bavarian camp, they will notice the sunsets and... You know, like us today, right now, going through sunset, it's pretty nice. But these people, they were so deep in their inner experience, they'd never seen anything like it. And anybody who looked at them, their faces through the carriages, you just wouldn't believe for a second that these people have given up hope. They even developed a, a sense of humor, which was, you'd think would be impossible to find anything funny or anything humorous in these times. But it was one of the mind's great coping mechanisms. As you said, they were heading on a train to a different camp. They didn't know where they were going. They thought they were going to... Morthausen, and they, that was something they'd heard was a bad, bad, bad place. Uh, we know that Auschwitz is bad, but apparently this was even worse. Then the train pulled up and they saw the sign Dachau, which was also bad, but nowhere near as bad as Mauthausen. And that they, they were they were just like overjoyed. Oh, they mate, were overjoyed. Didn't have a chimney. This place. They didn't have a chimney, so they were, they were cracking jokes for hours. They were so happy that even though they'd been taken to another concentration camp where they were going to. Uh, have months, weeks, years of suffering and hard labor, forced slave labor. But thank goodness there was no chimney, so they were over over the moon. Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest lessons here. It's just the relativity of all suffering that can happen in a human's life. Like if you just have that as an absolute thing, going to Dachau, is that how you pronounce it, Ashjay? Close enough, yeah. We'll go with that. That in an absolute sense you'd say there's no way mm. anyone would possibly enjoy that. No. But in a relative sense, if someone's coming from a more awful experience like it is in Auschwitz, to that, um, relative point of view, they're all of a sudden dancing and overjoyed, um, you know, probably one of the more pleasurable moments of their entire lives. They became grateful of these smallest smallest mercies. They, uh, they even at this place, they got a toothbrush as well. Mm. Which after, I guess, having, having stinky breath for three years in Auschwitz, they thought it was fantastic. They've got a toothbrush now. Just this tiny thing that maybe maybe sometimes when you're going to bed and think it was just a pain to head to the bathroom for a minute and a half, two minutes to brush the teeth, 
that it's almost uh, an inconvenience to you. These guys were just overjoyed by the smallest of things. Well, their, their expectations every day are just anchored in such an awful experience. I remember Victor in the book, he spoke about one day where he got an extra little potato mm. at the bottom of his soup. And, you know, he hung on to that for a couple of weeks. He said that kind of brought <laughs> so much joy for so long, just this little bit of potato. It's crazy. He uses the analogy. He says suffering is like uh, like a gas in that the behavior of suffering in, inside the brain is like the behavior of gas inside a chamber. If you put a little bit of gas inside the chamber, it spreads out to evenly fill that whole chamber. No matter how big the chamber, it spreads out evenly. So, he says that suffering is the same in that a small bit of suffering spreads out evenly and fills the whole chamber of your mind. So, what he's getting at here is, is that suffering, of course, it did fill Victor's soul in a lot of ways and the other prisoners. So, there was a lot of gas in his chamber using that metaphor. But in the other sense, it can fill other people's souls almost entirely as well, just with a little bit of gas. Um, If you're on a Monday morning, you're not enjoying your day, your boss yelled at you, you're having issues with your partner, anything like that, a small bit of suffering, that could actually fill your entire soul for the week Mm. and the net result or the net experience on the brain could be exactly what Victor experienced in in the concentration camps. So, he's saying that suffering is is relative in the sense that obviously Victor and all, all the other prisoners were going through immense suffering but that suffering fill the whole brain and you can probably feel like you're going through some immense suffering yourself. If you put it into perspective of Victor, probably whatever you're going through isn't quite as bad but it feels just as bad. Mm. I think embedded in that is probably where the value of this book is because it gives you that perspective, right? So, if you're in your brain about what your expectations of reality is meant to be and you hear about Victor's story and you're looking at your own reality relative to that, you probably only feel joy and pleasure um, and start enjoying that warm showers you have and the food and you're not worrying about breadcrumbs and everything like that. The experiences in the camp, the stories that we've spoken through so far uh, and all the other stories that were shared in the book really show that people have a choice of action. There are plenty of stories often of a heroic nature that showed or that proved that apathy could be overcome. There were stories of people who would walk through the different huts of the concentration camps and comfort their fellow prisoners. There were stories of people giving away their last two breadcrumbs. There were stories of people overcoming this dullness, this bluntness, this nothingness, and actually connecting with the other people in the camp. And what it really showed was that even in the most atrocious of circumstances, we still have a choice. Yeah, there was enough examples and sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a human except one thing. And this is the last of the human's freedoms and this is to choose one's attitude in any set of circumstances and choose one's own way. I think uh, the directors of Braveheart took uh, took that quote and that whole script, that final scene from this book here, I'd say. Have you seen it? No. <laughs> it's pretty much word for word there, mate. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you have one day, you take one thing, just one thing. Me take your souls. I'll not take your freedom. That's it. Everyone's got the choice. Everyone's got the choice. Every day, every hour, you've got the choice. Even through your suffering, uh, even whatever external circumstances are happening around you, internally, you still have the choice as to how you're going to respond to those circumstances. So, seen from this point of view, the mental reactions of the inmates of a concentration camp or those of us just living in everyday society 
can be merely more than just a certain set of physical or the sociological conditions, the things that are happening around you. Even though things can get really bad, it might be lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses and physical stresses that get thrown on the human body. In the final analysis, what it comes down to, that it's not all about the external influences alone. It's about what you have inside of you. You might be able to retain your human dignity even when things get as bad as it is in a concentration camp. And not only that, there might be opportunities for this suffering. There's a quote here by your mate Ashto Dostoevsky. He once said, There's only one thing I dread, and that is not to be worthy of my sufferings. Not to be, mate, it's a quote that I've definitely heard before, and a quote that I don't, I can't say that I fully understand. It takes a, a lot to, a few reads to roughly. To wrap the head around, Maybe I'm not sure I'm just if my head's around it. I think yet, it comes but... in. Uh, it comes in a bit. The kicker. Yeah, it's a very interesting quote because what he's trying to say that even in the most difficult of circumstances, when things are more awful than you could possibly imagine, what lies in it? Not just the awful situation, but there's actually an opportunity in how bad things are. You can add meaning into your life, and you know a lot of people in the general population who aren't going through the suffering don't get this opportunity. So this is what he's trying to get at. I think it's a very odd one, but in a weird way, you've got the opportunity to set yourself from the pack, remain brave, dignified, and unselfish. Because in this bitter fight for self-preservation when things go to shit, most people forget their human dignity and become no more than an animal. You've got the opportunity to, to stand up straight like a human being. So here lies the chance to make use of or forego of the opportunity to attain moral values that difficult situations can afford you. And this is what decides whether you're worthy of your sufferings or not. One of the prisoners who, upon their arrival, was marching in the daily punishment marches that they had to do, this new inmate, he said to Vic that he felt like he was marching in his own funeral. His life seemed to be absolutely without future. He regarded pretty much everything of his life to be over and done. It felt like he'd already died. He basically thought he was walking the march of his own funeral, and really that was that. This feeling of lifelessness had intensified. Anything outside the barbed wire fences seemed so remote, so distant, so unreal. Outside life seemed to be over, and for him, his inside life seemed to be over as well. For this person, he didn't see any possible opportunity. He didn't see any other choice other than to just really give up. Whereas other prisoners did see this difficulty as an opportunity. Some people recognized that these exceptionally difficult external situations actually gave them opportunities to grow spiritually, to grow beyond themselves, to become something more, to take on more inner strength than they ever thought possible. So opportunities hadn't necessarily passed in their life. There actually was one right in front of them at the moment. It was an opportunity and also a challenge. You can make a victory of these experiences that you're going through. You can turn these circumstances into an inner triumph or a lot of people, you could ignore the challenge and just simply vegetate as did the majority of the prisoners. So Victor, he saw these two paths consistently in himself. Like one night he was thinking endlessly about the problems of his miserable life, you know, thinking about what, what's he going to do tomorrow if a tiny bit of sausage comes his way or a bit of bread or how is he going to become cozy with the SS guards. And then he became disgusted with his self because he realized that he's gone down that vegetation path um, daily and hourly thinking of these trivial things. But one evening, he kind of rose above these moments and he saw himself standing on the platform of a well-lit, warm and pleasant lecture room and in front of him sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. And he was actually giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. 
So he was thinking, all right, Sunday, I might be able to use this moment um, and this abnormal psychological thing that's going on in my brain and lecture other people and help them in their lives. And this is what something that gave him meaning in this one situation. He was able to paint a picture of the future and look for how he could be of benefit to others in the future. Too many of the other prisoners had lost faith completely. They figured the future was non-existent. They were completely doomed. With this loss of belief in the future came a loss of any kind of spiritual hold and any kind of mental or physical strength that they had. They just began to decay. Whenever they thought that their life was over, pretty much their life became over. They gave up and within days or weeks, they'd get sick or they'd get beaten down or they'd just absolutely give up. It was only those who were able to discover some kind of future, some kind of meaning that were the ones who were able to stick through it. Nietzsche, he said, he who has the wire to live can bear almost any how. And that's it. Like The people who had that future goal, some, something, some reason for them to keep going on, they're the ones who could find the how to pursue and push through these moments. Probably the biggest banger of the book, he says that we need to stop asking about the meaning of life and realize that it is we who are being asked. Life is asking us what meaning we're going to attribute it. We can't find some uh, external meaning. It's us that we need to decide and come up with our own meaning. Kind of flips it on its head, doesn't it? A lot of people finding, oh, I haven't found my why. I haven't found my why. Uh, <laughs> life it. hasn't given it to me. What he's saying here, it's the other way around. And it's life that's asking you not just over your life or monthly or weekly. It's a moment-to-moment question that you've got to fulfill yourself. After going through all of Frankel's own experiences, plus seeing all those around him, the ones that were able to to stay strong and the, the ones who were able to fight it out, he found that the people that had discovered some kind of meaning or created some kind of meaning in their life was really in one of three areas. Either they found meaning through work, as in doing something significant, wanting to create something significant for others, or they found it through love, which was you know caring for another person very deeply, or they found it in having immense courage in these difficult times. He really found that the the people that found meaning, it boiled down to one of those three categories. Yeah, I think for a lot of people who do find meaning, the first two are self-evident. The third one, when it comes, like we've covered in, in the book, is when difficult times come. That's probably the hardest um, place to recognize meaning, you could say. But when, when you do find that it's your destiny to suffer, this is now your new task. It's not to go and vegetate. You've got to accept this thing as your unique thing that you've got to give to this world right now. And um, sometimes in these moments, there's no one out there who can come and, and save you. This is your unique task that you're alone in the universe, but it's also your unique opportunity here in the way that you accept this burden, what's been given to you. To wrap up this episode, we'll re- revisit this quote that we've mentioned a couple of times from the big bad Nietzsche, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. Mm. So, you know, suffering in and of itself, it's meaningless, but we can find our meaning in the way that we respond to it. We can find a why and then we can take on that how. So, you know, at one point he points out a person can remain brave, dignified and unselfish or in the bit of fight for self-preservation, you might forget your human dignity and just become no more than an animal. So, you know, most people, obviously, they turn it into an animal, but there were a few people who didn't give up this last of the human freedoms. It's important to remember that forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except for one thing, 
your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. We can't control what happens to us in our life, but we can control how we feel about it and what we do about it next. Life is meaningful and we must learn to see life as meaningful despite whatever your circumstances are. There is an ultimate purpose to life. Remember, and there's a quote here we're going to finish from Victor. We have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he's also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer on his lips. 